thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. discovering exactly why it is that scientists are busy punching into people's skin if they're on a quest for knowledge about the brain. And we'll be finding out what switching on the birth of new brain cells does for memory. Plus, we'll be asking, can we burn off that excess Christmas weight by doing a difficult maths problem instead of hitting the treadmill? This is the Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. Starting the programme, I went in search of answers about Parkinson's disease. First up, I wanted to get some idea of how many people it affects and how. Yes, hello. Well, I'm James Roy. I'm a consultant neurologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital and I work with the Cambridge University on some of the research studies in Parkinson's disease and related disorders. Well, Parkinson's is a fantastically diverse and challenging illness, not just because it affects up to 100,000 people in the UK, but because of the range of problems it can cause. Many people will be familiar with the idea that it causes a tremor and slowness and stiffness, but perhaps not everyone will be aware it causes many other problems, what we call non-motor symptoms. These include sleep problems, um, these affecting mood of anxiety and depression, pain even, uh, and many other problems. Even constipation is, is remarkably common too. So a wide range of symptoms. Many people, even quite early in the illness, have difficulty with thinking flexibly or planning ahead and multitasking in their mind. This is distinct from what can happen later on in the illness, which is some patients can go on to get a dementia. So two very different sorts of thinking or memory problems, but both very challenging. And do we know much about what's going on in the brain in order to give rise to these very complex and wide-ranging symptoms associated with Parkinson's? Well, it's been known for, for many years that a key chemical in the brain called dopamine is lacking. The cells that make dopamine appear to die back early in Parkinson's disease. In fact, by the time that somebody presents to their doctor with Parkinson's disease, you may already have lost um, 70, 80 or even 90% of the dopamine cells. So the mainstay of treatment for the last 45 years has been dopamine drugs, either to mimic dopamine or help your body boost the amount of dopamine it can make. So this highly prevalent disorder, most famously now affecting Michael J. Fox, is known to have a biological cause, this dying off of the dopamine nerve cells. We can treat it by giving patients L-DOPA or similar to replace some of the lacking chemical messenger dopamine and alleviating some of the symptoms. But in the main, this only helps mask the symptoms for a short amount of time. Researchers are hoping to improve available treatments by coming up with clever new techniques to gain a much better understanding of the disorder. I visited Oxford to find out more. 
My name is Richard Wade Martins. I'm a lecturer here at the University of Oxford, and I also head the recently formed Oxford Parkinson's Disease Centre. The critical thing that we really don't understand about Parkinson's is of all the billions of neurons that are present in your brain, why is it those that make dopamine that die off? It's one of the major unanswered questions in the disease and one of the things we're focusing here in my laboratory. What we're able to do now for the first time is actually make neurons in the laboratory from patients and from controls. Now, how do we do that? You can't drill a hole in somebody's head and take out some neurons to grow the dish. People want to keep hold of their neurons, they're too precious. So what we can do instead is to use new technologies of stem cells. So what we've been able to do in the centre is to take a skin biopsy from an individual, either a Parkinson's patient or a control, take that skin biopsy uh, using a hole punch. It's about the same size as a, a hole you might punch out in a piece of A4 paper. So you take that uh, skin punch, take that back to the laboratory, chop it up into little bits and let those bits of skin fall down to the bottom of your dish and you put a growth medium on top of there, a sort of liquid that contains all the things that cells need to be happy and grow, and a type of cell called a fibroblast will start to grow out from the skin culture. So after about two or three weeks, the cells have grown out from your skin sample, and you now have a culture of growing cells from either a patient or a control. What you then do is you can use uh, um, various uh, genetic tricks, if you like. You can add to these fibroblasts a number of different cellular reprogramming factors, we call them, that are able to, to turn back the clock, if you like, on these fibroblasts. You're able to genetically persuade the fibroblasts that they're not skin cells anymore, but they're stem cells. And these cells will now grow in your dish as stem cells. They're called induced pluripotent stem cells. They're induced because you've turned them into stem cells, and they're pluripotent. They will go on to become any cell type you like. So once you've got stem cells from your patients, you can now turn them into a cell type that you wish to study. So if we were interested, for example, in cardiovascular disease, we'd turn them into cells of the heart and study that. So what we do in the lab, we're interested in, in dopamine neurons, how they work and how they die. So we turn these stem cells into dopamine neurons. So this exciting new technology of turning skin cells into dopamine nerve cells provides a method by which to investigate how the cells of patients with Parkinson's differ to other people's and why they are more susceptible to dying in the first place. The idea being that once you understand how these cells die in the dish, you can first of all screen for new molecules that may help them survive and put us on the road to developing, for the first time, therapies in Parkinson's that can stop the cells dying rather than just supplement the dopamine that's already lost. Richard explains how they're using this technique in the lab to do this. So the dopamine neurons in a in an individual, and even in a patient, will work quite happily for 30, 40 or 50 years and then they'll start dying. My PhD students and postdocs don't want to work in the lab growing these neurons for 50 years, so we have to try and understand what might be changing much earlier. So when dopamine neurons die in a patient, they accumulate aggregates, gluggy bits of proteins, if you like, called Lewy bodies, and these Lewy bodies form as the neurons die over decades. We're not working on that time scale, so we have to better understand what are the very earliest changes that may occur in these neurons to give us the first clue as to how they're starting to, to function differently. And we're starting to, to understand and, and investigate aspects of neuron biology that may be different in patients rather than controls. So there's various things we could study. We can study how they, how they make dopamine, how they release dopamine. We can study other aspects of, of cell biology that are important for neurons. So, for example, 
neurons don't divide. Neurons have to very tightly regulate the material in their cell and to recycle it and reuse it. Um, and so we're starting to, to investigate differences that may uh, occur in these neurons from a Parkinson's patient that mean they're not as able to recycle and reuse their uh, cellular components as well as a, a healthy neuron might. Another difference that may be is uh, in the way the neurons make and generate and supply energy. So there's a, a type of component of a cell called a mitochondria. There's the energy factory. It makes energy. And there's been a suspicion for a long time that the mitochondria of Parkinson's patient just might not be quite as good. So we're starting to, to study a whole range of, of aspects of neuron biology in patients and control cell lines to better understand why those neurons die. And only when you understand how they die can you think how you might protect them. So these skin cells that have been turned into nerve cells, could they be used to help identify people who are at high risk of developing Parkinson's decades down the line? So that's a great idea. So the, 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 the exciting aspect about these stem cells and the neurons that you make is that they are unique to the patient that you've made them from. So yes, we would be able to try and correlate um, perhaps proteins secreted from these neurons and how that might be different proteins secreted from a patient neuron compared to a control neuron. And to next find out what somebody affected by the disorder actually thinks of this research, I took to the phone. My name's Alan Cameron and uh, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's in late 2004, so I've been living with the condition for around eight years now. The, the kind of thing you've described sounds e extremely um, hopeful because it it sounds like something that's that's practical, that's within reach, um, that is perhaps heading towards a cure or, or meaningful um, protective effects to slow down the, the underlying progress of the condition. I also wanted to know more about the symptoms of the disorder and how it's affected Alan so far. Parkinson's is first and foremost um, known as a movement disorder and the symptoms that I've experienced are primarily a loss of dexterity, which has been an issue for, for my job because I spend a lot of time typing. As well as a, a movement disorder, um, it commonly brings depression, and I've um, experienced that also. And in many ways, that's been a bigger part of the impact of my work than the, the movement disorder itself. And it's um, no, well known that it's currently incurable and it's a progressive condition. With medication, we can address some of the symptoms, but we don't address the underlying progress of the condition. I'm, I'm lucky in that, um, for me, the progression has been quite slow. It's, uh, Parkinson's is known as a kind of designer disease. It, it affects different people very differently. Drugs are available which are very effective at addressing the symptoms. So what you will tend to find is you'll, you'll ramp up the drugs slowly over time but you do slowly day by day start to notice that different things become more difficult my dexterity is primarily affected on the left side so changing gear or getting my arm into a sleeve is sometimes difficult and i've tended to avoid shirts with cufflinks because they can become just a little bit too much fun in order to find out more about these mood symptoms and the progression of Parkinson's disease, I returned to speak with neurologist Dr James Rowe from Cambridge University. Yes, well, depression and the other mood problem of anxiety are extremely common with Parkinson's disease. There's, there's a lot of questions that are unanswered. 
the first is to say, is it more common than you would expect in people of a similar age? Is the depression a reaction in some people against having what is essentially bad news? Is it a reaction to having a restriction on your lifestyle and your expectations of a happy and active retirement? Or could it be something more that the illness itself is leading to depression? One of the challenges we face is, is it's not clear whether the usual approaches to treatment of depression that you might take in, in younger adults without Parkinson's disease, whether they work as well in patients with Parkinson's disease. And can you tell us a little bit about the research that's going on here in Cambridge in the area of Parkinson's? So that we have a very active research clinic here, um, recruiting patients really from, from Cambridgeshire and surrounding counties. And it covers a very diverse range of projects. One of them is to really try and understand what the very first symptoms of Parkinson's disease are and how it first affects the brain, really within, within months of your symptoms coming on. On that basis, we also want to try and understand what predicts how your Parkinson's disease will evolve. Will you be someone who lives with it, with an, a nuisance from your Parkinson's disease, remaining fully active and independent over 10 or 15 years? Or will you be someone who will get an early and aggressive dementia, uh, perhaps over the first couple of years? Both of these things can happen. What we don't yet understand is, is predicting and understanding why one individual takes one route or the other. So a lot of research onto, onto that. That's linked to, to work on both treating some of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, and our emphasis is on treating the, the thinking and memory problems that can come with Parkinson's disease, what we call cognition or enhancing cognition. The other aspect is looking at uh, treatments that might alter the course of the illness itself, fundamentally alter the course of the illness. What's increasingly clear in the focus for our research is the other chemicals in the brain that can be affected by Parkinson's disease. So two in particular uh, we focus on, one called serotonin that people might have heard of in connection with depression and mood or anxiety. The other chemical is noradrenaline, a brain's version of adrenaline, that's also very important for clear thinking and flexibility. Alan has been involved in a number of such studies as a volunteer. I asked him more about the experience. Was it empowering? I think it's, it's recognised as a kind of um, therapeutic effect of volunteering. It, it gives you some way of feeling that you can take the fight to the condition rather than just sit and uh, spectate on an inevitable decline. So, how does one go about volunteering for such research studies? I called up the Director of Research and Innovation at the charity Parkinson's UK. My name is Dr Kieran Breen. There are a number of ways in which this can be done. One of these is by taking part in a clinical trial. This could be, for example, testing out a new drug to see if it's better than an existing drug. Or it could be using some other sort of treatment, such as physiotherapy or other sorts of therapies that don't involve the use of medicines. And another way in which we are encouraging people to get involved is by forming partnership re with researchers. When a researcher wants to carry out a trial that will ultimately help people with Parkinson's, it's important that they get the views of the people who have the condition at an early stage. We want to make sure that at the end of the piece of research that the findings will actually be meaningful for somebody affected by the condition. And in terms of people with Parkinson's volunteering for these different types of studies, how long should they expect to be donating their time for this type of activity? This may involve one hour per month. It may involve one hour per day. 
there are many different types of projects and there are many different ways in which people can get involved. And what we want to be able to do is to provide people with a wide variety of different areas of research and different ways in which you can get involved in research. And then you can make a decision as to how or if you want to get involved according to what is required and according to the time that you have available. That was Dr Kieran Breen from Parkinson's UK. And before that, I spoke with Alan about his condition, in addition to Dr James Rowe and Dr Richard Wade-Martin, about their research at Cambridge and Oxford Universities, respectively. Next, we'll be finding out if it's true that we only use 10% of our brains. But first, it's time to take a look at the top stories from this month. I joined PhD student David Weston from Cambridge University. He's been busy sifting through neuroscience research and comes up with his three favourite papers from the month. The first paper I want to talk about has to do with memory. So scientists have thought for a long time that the birth of new brain cells within an area of the brain called the hippocampus is really important for memory function. But exactly how these new brain cells actually work and how they integrate into the brain is something that researchers have been working really hard over. So a group of scientists based at the State University of New York in the US have used a combination of viral and optogenetic techniques to find out just how important the growth of new brain cells within the hippocampus really is. They used a virus to deliver light-sensitive genes into newborn cells within the hippocampi of adult mice. So this virus infects only newborn cells and gives them genes that produce proteins that are sensitive to light. So this gives the researchers the ability to control cells by shining lights of different colours onto the cells to activate them or to deactivate them. That's fantastic. So just by shining different coloured lights into these adult mice, they could actually switch on or off these newly born cells. What did the researchers do next? Well, what they really wanted to do was to see how important new cells within the hippocampus are for memory function. So first they showed that if they activated the newborn cells, they could enhance something called synaptic plasticity. And this is widely believed by scientists to be a correlate with better memory function. They then tried to deactivate them by shining a different coloured light onto them. And they found that mice performed much worse in some tests of memory function. So that kind of indicates that these newborn cells had something to do with memory formation then? Yeah, it does. But interestingly, the effects of manipulating these newborn cells were only seen when the cells were four weeks of age, so not when they were older or when they were younger. So these results hint at the idea that the new cells within the hippocampus are able to exert a memory-enhancing effect, but only at early stages of their development. Wow, so this means that the timing of when the new cells are born could play an important role in memory formation and behaviour. What's your next paper? So the second paper I want to talk about also has something to do with timing, but it's about how much of your life is affected by your time as a fetus. So there's an increasing amount of evidence that suggests that many aspects of your adult health can be traced back to aspects of your fetal environment and, importantly, your birth weight. So your weight at the time of your birth might be linked to things to do with your brain. How did the scientists in the study work that one out? So this group of scientists were working uh, as part of a collaboration between Norway and the USA, and they collected data from 628 adults, adolescents and children, and they measured things like the thickness of their cerebral cortex, the volume of their brain, so the size of it, and also the surface area of the brain using MRI machines. And they found that you can make a correlation between birth weight and the total size of the brain as an adult. So 
with a higher birth weight, you get a much larger size of the brain in the adult. So at birth, your weight actually influences your brain size further down the line, you know, decades down the line. Is this actually important? Well, low birth weight can influence your likelihood of getting some cognitive disorders like autism, where you're five times more likely to get the disease when you're born with a particularly low birth weight. While this study doesn't really say anything about specific links between birth weight and disease, it does show that brain development is heavily influenced by factors surrounding your birth. And what's your final paper? So the final paper this time is about a new drug that could help fight the effects of Alzheimer's disease. And it's a paper from a collaboration between groups in Japan and Canada who have taken an anti-diabetes drug and tested its ability to reverse some of the deleterious effects of the disease. How can a drug designed for diabetes treatment actually help with Alzheimer's? Well, this drug, which is called AC253, was originally part of a drug trial that looked for potential targets for diabetes. And one of these targets is a protein called amylin, which is actually very similar to the amyloid protein that's very important for Alzheimer's disease. So the team had already shown that this drug, AC253, could block the formation of toxic amyloid protein. But in this paper, they showed that treating brain cells with this drug could reverse some of the effects of Alzheimer's disease in vitro. So these experiments were just performed in a Petri dish, and you know, a glass dish. Does it actually translate to what's going on in a human brain? Well, the authors of the paper themselves seem quite optimistic about the prospect for a drug treatment. And the results are really encouraging because they show a reversal of an effect of a disease. So this might mean that they might be able to use this drug to reverse things like memory loss. That was David Weston from Cambridge University with his favourite papers from the month. Still to come, we'll be answering your neuroscience questions. But first, a little more neuroscience news. Listen up restoring hearing. Repetitively listening to loud music, getting old and even certain drugs can cause the hair cells in your inner ear to stop working, which can result in irreversible hearing problems. But Edge and colleagues at the Harvard Medical School have used a drug to trick existing cells in the ear to follow a different path and become new hair cells, resulting in the partial recovery of hearing. This study, published in Neuron, was done in mice, but may pave the way for a new treatment for hearing problems in humans. Next, are brown-eyed people more trustworthy than those with blue eyes? Kleisner and colleagues from Charles University, Czech Republic, wanted to know what makes for a most trustworthy face. So, the researchers presented 250 volunteers with 80 photos of different men and women, asking them to rate trustworthiness. Results were analysed and the brown eyes have it. Both men and women with brown eyes were perceived as more trustworthy than those with blue. They followed the study up with a bit of photoshopping, altering the eye colour, and found that it was not the eye colour per se that affected trustworthiness, but more the eye shape and features associated with brown eyes. And that study was published in PLOS One. Next, Scorpion's Venom paves the way for better brain tumour treatments. A compound inspired by Scorpion Venom could help neurosurgeons to identify cancerous brain tissue from the healthy stuff. Traditionally, surgeons have just felt their way around the brain when trying to remove just the cancerous tissue. And when this can go wrong, it can lead to severe problems. 
But a scorpion toxin has somehow evolved to bind specifically to cancerous brain cells. And now Jim Olson at Seattle Children's Hospital, working with the company Blaze Bioscience, have linked the toxin to a molecule so that it glows, forming a tumour paint. Clinical trials start this year. And if you want to find out more about any of these stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. Next up, we tackle some of your neuroscience questions. I join Professor Simon Laughlin from Cambridge University, who's been flexing his brain power to answer your questions about the brain. First up, Sean Hoskins got in touch via Facebook, asking, can you burn off a hot fudge sundae by doing a difficult maths problem instead of hitting the treadmill? The answer is definitely no. So when Lowry and Keaty first measured the oxygen consumption of the human brain, the second experiment that they did was to test whether the brain was like a muscle, that if you worked it harder, it had to use more energy. And so they got people to sit down and solve difficult math problems and measured their energy consumption of the brain. And what they found was that there was no detectable change. So doing difficult math problems will certainly not enable you to lose weight. The best thing you can use your brain for is to design a good exercise regime and a diet. Brilliant. Thank you, Simon. So I I suppose I should be hitting the treadmill then in order to shed those Christmas pounds. Um, Next question in from Etienne Musto, wondering, is it true that we only use 10% of our brains? And if so, why? What happens to the remaining 90% of our brain? The answer to this question is really contained in the answer to the last question, that your brain is ticking over all of the time. And when you actually engage in a specific task, you do something specific, a small part of the brain that's concerned with doing that task um, becomes more active, starts signalling more vigorously to process the information that's needed to solve that problem or to stop you falling over or whatever. And that is why, because it's a small fraction that gets switched into action to do something specific, that's why people could not measure a big change in energy consumption when the brain engaged actively in some specific mental work. Of course, what this means is that there are large parts of your brain which are just ticking over, and they're sitting there ready to engage in something when they need to. So you might ask the question, well, could I in fact have more of these parts of the brain switched on and do incredible multitasking? And the answer is no. When these small regions of the brain become more active to do a specific piece of mental work, their signalling rates go up by a factor of about 10. And some work that David Atwell and I did a few years ago, Dave is Professor of Neuroscience at UCL in London, work that we did a few years ago shows that if you were to increase the activity of of every neuron in the brain tenfold, then your brain would be using more energy per second, per gram of brain, than an Olympic sprinter um, making a world record attempt. So in that case, is it true that you can only use 10% of your brain by concentrating on one particular task at any time? Or do you think you could recruit maybe 25-50% of your brain to be much more energetically active and engaged in many different tasks? Or has your brain somehow got some capacity to stop that from happening? 
Well, it mainly comes from the, the, the capacity is really inbuilt into the architecture of the brain. That the, the architecture of the brain is that it, it's not a general-purpose computer that uses a small set of circuits to do everything. It's a specialized computer which has a specific set of circuits for every task. And because of that, then it's able to deal with everything, but only a, only a small fraction of the brain's circuits will be engaged in that at any one time. And this really leads us on to the final question. Kevin Hoover has been in touch again via Facebook saying, how does the brain interpret all the information that's coming in through its senses? So, for example, tactile information transmitted from his extremities, such as hot, cold, smooth and coarse, etc. And he's also asking, is the information encoded in some fashion or rooted to different places depended on the sensation? The reason that you're able to de detect hot and cold and touch and so on and tell the difference between those different types of energy which are impinging on the surface of your body is that in your skin you have sensory receptor cells which are sensitive specifically to heating, specifically to cooling, to particular types of touch, fast, sharp shocks, deep stretches and so on. And so those sensory receptors in the periphery already sort out the different types of stimulus that are impinging on your skin. And each one of those sensory receptors sends an axon, a wire, to the brain, and it sends it to a part of the brain that's specifically concerned with hot or cold or with different types of touch. So the information is being what we call in, in neuroscience line-labeled. If you're sitting in the brain you see an electrical signal coming along a particular line and you know that that line comes from a receptor which only responds when the temperature of the skin goes up, then you know that an increase in the signaling, electrical signals coming in means that that part of the skin is getting warmer. So how is this information encoded? The answer is that it's encoded by electrical pulses. So they're very brief, rapid up and down changes of electrical potential that last for one thousandth of a second. Now, it's tempting to say that these are digital because a digital computer also works by making pulse electrical pulses which switch from being down, which is zero, to up, which is being one. But in fact, the brain is not a digital computer. It's not processing information using digital logic. These pulses are coding the strength of the stimuli, how intense they are, by the frequency with which they occur, i.e. how many pulses are there per second. And when the rate of pulses per second goes up, the brain generally in interprets this as the intensity of the stimulus becoming stronger. That was Professor Simon Laughlin from Cambridge University taking on your questions about energy in the brain. And if you've got any burning questions about your brain and the nervous system, just email them to neuroscience at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Neuroscience or you can post on our Facebook page and we'll do our best to answer them for you. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month with a Valentine's Love Special. We'll be finding out if love is the drug. We'll be probing romance, discovering the brain rush during courtship, sex, pleasure, monogamy, and we'll be trying to get to the bottom of promiscuity. 
This Naked Neuroscience podcast has been brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. See you next month to open our minds. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.